And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had a chance this week to sit down with one of my favorite people, David Chalian, the political director of CNN and the host of his own podcast, the CNN Political Briefing. David's one of the smartest political journalists around, but as you'll hear, he also has an incredibly interesting personal story. Here's that conversation. David Chalian, first of all, let me say happy birthday. Thanks. It's what serendipity a... that I should be here with you on this auspicious I can't day. think of another way I'd like to celebrate my 49th <laughs> birthday. That's a sad commentary. Right? <laughs> oh, I'm happy to spend time with you. We're starting off lying to not each other. Not true. Not true. No, but it's really great to see you. And, um, you know, one of the one of the great uh, blessings of uh, the show is that you end up learning about people who you thought you knew well. And, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about your your personal history. So uh, let's start there. Okay. And um, your family, uh, Armenian Jews. Yeah, which is um, an odd combination. Well, two sides of the family. Uh, My father, uh, the Armenian side, uh, grew up Catholic. He converted to Judaism to marry my mom. Ah. And so, um, but basically genocide and persecution on all sides, right? Yes. And <laughs> did his family come over around the time of the genocide or? Uh, no, his family uh, came over a, a little past that. Um, but uh, he and my mother both grew up in Brooklyn and they were sort of on the streets of Brooklyn together in their middle school years, uh, um, they didn't sort of fall in love until college years, but uh, they were very good friends. And so uh, my father, um, I was telling this story about he he converted to Judaism to marry my mom because he knew how important it was to my mom's dad, yes. my grandfather, that 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 happened. And again, they were childhood friends. So when he, my dad, went to his father to say, hey. I'm going to convert to Judaism and do this to make things easier. My grandfather, who I didn't know he died before I was born on my father's side, um, who really liked my mom, un- like knew her as my dad's good friend, just had one line to say. And he said, as long as you know, you're going to hell for it. And then that was it. Like went to the yeah. wedding, attended. It was t- a totally accepted thing, but uh, I guess needed to get that uh, off his chest. I can assure you. My father, who passed away at age 43 when I was 11 years old, uh, did yes. not go to hell for it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, that's hard. I lost my dad when I was 19, but 11 years old is very young. Yeah. And I'm realizing now, uh, David, in my age, that 43 is really young, too. I yes. Just no celebrating my question 49th about birthday. it. It's just... And so I think about... Like I'm what, on what borrowed happened? time. He had a heart attack. He woke up one morning and just had a, a heart attack. And, and were you there died. when that happened? I was in my bedroom. Um, and uh, yeah, my dad woke up, collapsed, and I didn't go into my parents' room. We had a neighbor across the street who worked on the first aid squad, was a volunteer uh, member on the first aid squad, came over, tried to revive him. The ambulance came, took him, and then we just... I stayed at the house with my sister and my grandmother who had come over and uh, waited for my mom to come back from the hospital with the news that he uh, didn't make it. So it was yeah, devastating. I was 11. My sister was 14. My mom was 42. 
as I said, my dad was 43, and it was a life-altering event for our family. And you were close to your dad? Yeah, very. I mean, I I think again now, it's like close to my dad. I was 11 years old, so super close. We were a close-knit family. Yes. But think about all that time that I could have been getting closer to him and didn't have that. No, I, you know... Like I said, I lost my dad at 19, and it was Under tragic. Yes, he 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 he, he uh, took his own life, but I had him for those f- formative years, you know, and he helped steer me through. In fact, one of the last, I mean, the last conversation we had was uh, rich with meaning that I didn't understand at the time. He called me at college and said, "You know, I know now that you and your sister are going to do very well, and I'm just want you to know how proud I am of you." It was unusual to get a call like that. And yeah. I was like, well, thanks, Dad. You know, I, I appreciate that. And I didn't realize he was saying goodbye. Yeah. Well, but, my father, again, it was a surprise. He couldn't say goodbye, but I never doubted for a day in the 11 years I had with him that he was proud of me. I look like him, so I get to sort of see him in the mirror each morning. And he remained a very living presence in our lives. My mother uh, got remarried. My stepfather, Lloyd, is a great guy and has uh been a part of our family for decades now. Um, but my mom made sure that my dad remained a living presence. No photos of my dad came down in the house. Um, Lloyd came into our house and in a very loving way accepted the fact that our father was still going to be a presence in our lives and, and just new photos went up. But um, uh, that was really important to my mom. And I, my mother, a saint, I mean, you know, I, she always says having an 11 year old and a 14 year old helped her get through this tragedy yeah. because she had to get up every day and continue to raise right. her kids. And that was her saving grace. And she clearly was our saving grace. Yeah. You had two interests uh, that grew up sort of side by side. One was in politics and the other was in theater, which weirdly are somewhat related. I can <laughs> say having spent my life around politics. Yeah. But talk, talk to me about that. So it's funny to hear you say that, David, because, of course, in your line of work uh, throughout your whole career, you sort of have lived at this intersection of uh, politics and performance and, yeah. and and all of that. And as a journalist, I covered the theater of politics. Exactly. I When I told people initially when I, I went to school at Northwestern University and I um, when I initially got to school and double majored in theater and political science, people used to look at me like I had two heads. Like, how did those two things go together? And as you noted, nobody looks at me that way anymore. Right. It, 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 the theater of politics, I think, is so present in our everyday uh, that it doesn't seem as crazy. I just you are right. They were dual passions of mine. When I was in the first grade, I um, my first grade teacher, uh, Mary Lynch was her name, Miss Lynch. She challenged us to uh, go home and learn the name of the president of the United States and the two presidents preceding him. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I opened up the world book encyclopedia in our house and went to the- memorize them all. Yeah, you? I yeah. Memor- I, I, I knew in, you were going to in reverse uh, chronological order. Yes, right. So yes. like uh, and I couldn't stop uh, learning their names and who these men were and. I went into school the next day and I recited all of the presidents uh, in uh, reverse order and I would tug on the janitor's leg and recite it. And so my fascination (laughs) with presidential politics was very early on. And I've always had a love of 
uh, American history. Um, but but let me just say yeah. parenthetically, uh, now that you're approaching your 50th year, <laughs> you're going to find yourself reciting the presidents in reverse chronological order just to test your mental acuity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I'll have to actually um, add the ones after Jimmy Carter, who was president <laughs> when I was in first grade, because uh, I memorized it by rote back but, then, I'm sure. But anyway, <laughs> you so you were this was a passion of yours. But what but 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 how did the theater and that was developing at the same time. I mean, uh, you know, school plays and what have you. I, I loved this notion of being on stage and performing and getting a response from the audience. And that was really the passion, the hobby that became the dominant force in my life in middle school and high school. I was immersed in school theater uh, projects, in community theater projects in the town in New Jersey that I grew up in. And I really thought I wanted to be a Broadway actor and that I wanted to pursue this in college and uh, as a profession. And so I thought, well, I want to keep the politics thing and I'll study that. But I think I'm going to go into theater. And, you know, I had this interesting podcast with Tom Hanks, who had a very troubled childhood. I mean, people think of him as sort of the all-American guy, but he uh, but he really, you know, he lived in 10 different places. His family was sort of dysfunctional and so on. And he said he found in theater, he found his community. And uh, did you find community in theater? Without a doubt. And um, at each stage of my youth, uh, where I saw how other communities were being formed around sports teams or around fraternities in college, where my community was the theater. And, and there's no doubt about it. It became... Um, it became the thing that formed my friends. It became the thing that formed my identity. And uh, and to this day, I mean, I, I don't obviously don't work in the theater, but I love very much uh, going to the theater and uh, being around people and friends and colleagues who do work in the theater. I think it's a fantastic community. Northwestern University has a wonderful theater program, and I'm sure that's what drew you there. You didn't leave. You left Northwestern and you did go to try and pursue a career in theater at first. I did. And and you are right. It was the theater program at Northwestern that drew me to that school. Somebody, when I was in eighth grade, said Northwestern has one of the best theater programs in the country, but you get a broad based liberal arts education. And I just set my sights on like, that's where I want to go. Yeah. Best decision I ever made yeah. in my life. It's a great, Hands great, down. great university. Great university. And just. Uh, it's not the University of Chicago, but I, it's great. I knew you would say, but <laughs> um, but I do. I, it just sort of changed. It broadened my mind. It changed me um, intellectually, and um, it was. And I've to this day, my very best friends in life are my college friends. And yes, I left to pursue acting, knowing. Did that, you do journalism there at all? So I didn't, and it's so funny because, of course, Medill, the Medill is a great journalism school, world-renowned journalism school. When people hear I went to Northwestern and they know that I'm a journalist now, they assume I went to Medill, and no, I didn't. I mean, I read the Daily Northwestern, the newspaper there, and I, uh, but I, it was not uh, a pursuit of mine at all. I was really focused on theater, and like I said, on my political science classes, but not on the, not the piece of journalism, and that. Came shortly after. So I, I did leave college and I was doing like uh, black box off, off, off Broadway stuff. Uh, first starting in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for a year after school and then moved to New York, did some 
commercial or what they call industrial work, like doing videos of like employee training videos or what have you that uh, people get cast in. But none of this, this daily grind of like going to an audition, rejection, going to an audition, rejection. I was like, plus I'm working temp jobs to, you know, actually pay my rent and and, uh, live my life. And so I was just like, this there must be something more fulfilling than this as a day-to-day existence. Although you you fell in with uh, a, a noted noted uh, figure in theater, Anna Devere Smith, who a playwright, a performer. People will, may may remember her from The West Wing, where she played the national security yes. advisor. But she's a, a a really really accomplished stage actor. Very much so. I mean, she basically created the genre of documentary style theater as a in one person shows right she's sort of the um the the creator of that and she had done work that i studied in my theater classes uh fires in the mirror about the jews and the blacks in crown heights brooklyn or twilight los angeles her work about uh the la riots after the rodney king decision came down and i was out of school Two years at this point, David, and I saw in the New York Times that Anna Devere Smith was working on a new project all about Washington and the relationship between the press and the presidency. And I had written my poli-sci thesis in college on the relationship between the press and the presidency. And here's this woman who I had studied in my theater classes. And I was like, I would sweep floors to go work on this project. So you grabbed a broom and went on over? <laughs> I actually, I was like, well, how am I going to find this and track it? And I didn't do anything about it. And two months later, after seeing that little preview in the New York Times, I got a call from one of my best friends from college. She said, I was just offered an internship at Arena Stage for this new Anna Devere Smith project, but I can't take it. I'm on my way out of the country. Wow. And I thought you'd be perfect for it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Is yeah. this the same? And I went to meet with Anna. And then I ended up working with Anna for three years on a whole host of projects. She was writing a book. I did some research. I did some producing. I helped her prepare for interviews for this play about the press and the presidency. Prepared it. She would interview people like you. Um, she she was interviewing all sort of the Clinton White House yeah. aides and journalists in Washington. Probably helped her later when she did The West Wing. Yeah, exactly. And I... And she would bring these hour-long interviews back and I would go through it and the transcript and we'd figure out which pieces would work for the play. And, you know, as we were working on that project and I heard all of these journalists, national political journalists, sharing their stories with her while I was doing this play, and it just started resonating with me being like, wow, maybe that is something I can do. It's an interesting parable because if there are younger people listening to this podcast, you know, it's like you can make a 30-year plan for life, but... It's never going to work out exactly as you think, and better to follow those leads and passions if you can. I mean, you had to make a living. Uh, I, I, I don't know when in that sequence of events that you played Superman in a local TV ad. <laughs> I read somewhere that, that you did that. That was in my first year out of college. Where I, had to, <laughs> I don't know where you read that. I don't know that that was ever in the public domain. But <laughs> it yes, is now. I, I did have to put on a Superman costume for uh, one of those We're still seeking uh, photos of this. We thought <laughs> I can assure you there are none. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you – so you, you went over to, to, to New York One. Yeah. Which is a local cable station in New York City. They do a lot of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
covered City Hall intensively. Mm-hmm. Mayor at the time was Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, it was his final year of his mayoralty uh, that I started there. And I was um, attached to the political unit because of my interest in politics. And it was following Giuliani's final year, but also the beginning of this amazing 2001 yeah. mail race, David. And this is actually where I met you for yes, the very first yes. time. And I, you won't recall this, but I do. You were sitting in the green room at New York One because you were advising Fernando Ferrer's mayoral campaign right. in that Democratic primary yes. that year. And, you know, we had on the consultants and the strategists all the time on our nightly political show in New York One called Inside City Hall. Uh, and I think we switched the title on in election years to The Road to the City Hall. Yes. So, um, and you were a guest on that. And I remember meeting you in the green room and I was brand new to this business. I was a news assistant. And um, and I... Uh, and I just got my eyes opened on the campaign trail to um, being in front of these candidates seeking high office every day and being part of this uh, operation that got to sort of test them and prod them and observe them and contextualize what they're saying, what they're selling to the citizenry. And um, my hunch in listening to those stories that Anna DeVere Smith was collecting in her work proved quickly that it was right, that I this was a good fit. And back to your earlier question about sort of politics and theater and where do they come together? Journalism and theater come together in one very clear way, and it's storytelling. Yes. It's all yes, storytelling. Yes, 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 yes. And so that became the common thread for me that I – it took a while to understand, but that I understood all that theater training actually was very applicable – uh, because of the training and storytelling to journalism. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. It's it's what attracted me. Uh, that element of politics is what attracted me. In fact, we we tried to tell a counter narrative in that 2001 campaign in New York because every other candidate was trying to be the next Rudy Giuliani, and we ran against that whole idea that what New York needed was a continuation of Giuliani. Freddie Ferrer would have won that race, but for the fact that a couple of airplanes hit the World Trade Centers, uh, Center towers uh, on election on day. On primary day, yep. Yeah, it was a uh, what a what a. And so then that obviously became a story. Nine Eleven that obviously dominated everywhere, but for New York One, the local yeah, channel, yeah. it was everything. And so, uh, uh, in that first year as a journalist, I got to uh, cover this mammoth story. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Then you had uh, sort of this meteoric rise at ABC. You worked for Mark Halperin there, Mm -hmm. who at that time was really one of the most highly regarded political journalists in the country. You must have some thoughts about, I mean, Mark had a a meteoric fall. Yeah. I mean, he is uh, a mentor of mine and has been instrumental in my career. He recruited me over to ABC from New York One to join the political unit. Um, And uh, it's obviously uh, very hard uh, to sort of square your personal feelings for someone when you uh, then see them uh, dealing with this onslaught of allegations that 
Um, sexual assault, harassment. Yeah, and so he on. was like a high-profile Me Too, yeah, uh, sort of uh, story. Uh, shortly after Harvey Weinstein, I think it yeah. was. You know, yeah, well, he was one of those after. pictures on the screen, and um, and that was uh, you know devastating because of uh, what high regard I held him in, and then you have to sort of sort out um, how do you have love for someone who has done something wrong and, and you know, that, that takes some time to sort through. Yeah. Yeah. When he left uh, ABC, this was not for that reason that came much later. You became the political director at ABC, which is quite something. I mean, it wasn't that long after you had um, uh, sort of made the conversion from theater to journalism. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I had been a journalist for uh, six years, I guess, at that point between New York One and my early days at ABC and had been promoted to ABC News political director just at the very early stages of, uh, you know, you know better than anyone, one of the greatest political stories ever in terms of presidential politics. That 2008 race on both the Republican and Democratic sides was just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, that was... I enjoyed it. I bet you did. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I think we had a lot of dealings. We did. Uh, we had a lot of dealings then. You traveled to Alaska and uh, produced the first television interview with Sarah Palin when she was appointed McCain's, r- named McCain's running mate. Yeah. So before the now infamous Katie Couric interview with yes. Sarah Palin, Charlie Gibson got the first yeah. uh, network interview with Sarah Palin. Which was also pretty revealing. It was very revealing. And I will tell you... That experience was incredible. I'd never been to Alaska, so that also was incredible. But we we spent two days uh, with Governor Palin, and this this was a week after her acceptance speech at the convention. So she was yeah. brand new to this and running hot pretty spotlight. high and and running pretty hot, no doubt. And we did the first day of interviews. Um, up in Fairbanks, her son was being deployed to Iraq, I believe, and and she was there for the departure ceremony. And then Charlie sat with her, and uh, which, by the way, is pretty smart political stagecraft to have you guys come up for that. Yeah, no doubt. And so uh, Charlie sat with her, and this is where, if you remember, uh, Charlie Gibson had sort of asked her about her thoughts on the Bush Doctrine, mm-hmm. um, and her answer. I, I just remember. I'm sitting there as one of the producers off camera taking notes so we can identify what are the newsiest bits of the interview. And I looked down at my notebook and I had written almost nothing down. Like I I couldn't find what her actual answer was to her thoughts on that. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. I wonder if she nervous or is she, you know, or is she revealing something to us here that maybe she's not ready for this job that John McCain uh, has asked her to do? And then I think, you know, that answer became clear to the country as the as the campaign went on. The next day, I will tell you, the second day of interviews, we went to her house in Wasilla. And this is when I realized she was going to hook into and capture the imagination of a big swath of Americans. Yes. we. This is such a silly little thing that stuck in my head, but it's a suburban home a nice suburban home and we were walking in through the garage into the laundry room and all of her and her family's credentials from the republican convention the week before the lanyards that we all wear around our neck to get on the floor yeah, of the yeah. convention, they're like hanging on the coat hook in the laundry room 
which is where I hang my uh, <laughs> yeah. credentials, like on a coat hook in my apartment or in my house at the time. And so I just in that moment, I thought if I had walked into the Obama house, the McCain house or the Biden house, would those be hanging on a coat hook or will someone have already sort of like such, such put those away somewhere? And it was just this moment where it was like and then she was calling after the kids. We sat down for the interview. She wanted to see the shot, she said, uh, because it was we were shooting her and you could see her kitchen beyond her, even though mm-hmm. she was in the living room. She wanted to make sure the dirty dishes were that weren't washed yet were out of the frame of the shot. And in that moment, I was just like, oh, she is identifiable to so many people. I could see her really having some traction on the trail. Yeah, it was a whole hockey mom. Yeah. Thing. You were so right in ways that you probably didn't even imagine. You know, if you trace sort of the the, the kind of foundation of Trumpism, uh, you saw it in the crowds that she attracted in that campaign. I mean, there was something, you know, that there was a foreshadowing there that and and what she began, you know, she was disdained at the time by other, you know, more uh, refined Republicans uh, her wing of the party, whether she's propelled by it or not, she's running for Congress now. Her wing of the party is the dominant wing of the Republican Party. Without a and just to use the example you're citing of her, the sort of foundations of Trumpism, I, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think we saw it, you know, all at the same time. Do you remember uh, this was when the House Republicans failed to pass TARP? Yes, uh, yes, 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 which was the the bill to to, uh, save Wall Street after the housing collapse, the mortgage collapse in in 2008. And it was a Republican president, right, and a Republican Treasury Secretary. I remember it well. And and yet the Republicans divided amongst themselves. Between the corporate Republicans and and the populist And down the bill. And that to me was like the – and then – Palin was right in that moment. And then, of course, with Obama's ascendancy to the presidency and the Tea Party came shortly thereafter, this all grew into Trumpism. But to to your point about the 08 campaign, remember that moment with John McCain when uh, that woman, I think he was in Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. And uh, she was claiming that Obama was a Muslim and uh, falsely, obviously. And McCain in that moment did something the Republican Party hasn't done with right. Trumpism yes. overall, which is to say no. It was his finest moment, and it was his most McCain moment in that campaign. And he got booed right. for doing it when he you can defended see Obama. Which piece of the party was ascendant yeah. in that moment. Yeah, yeah. You, you went to PBS uh, for a couple of years, which was directing amazing. their political coverage. And then you left and you went to Yahoo News, mm-hmm. which was going to make a big play at that time. Mm-hmm. But- in a very, very kind of illustrious career, this was your trial. Yeah. This was your moment. Uh, you were, I, I assume you thought you were not, you were not on a hot mic. And right. you, you it, made it, a comment, just ex- if you don't mind, I, and it's a bad thing to ask someone on their birthday, but. <laughs> okay. uh, no, I, I, you know, I was fired from Yahoo for being, for making a comment that was caught on a hot mic on what was the first canceled night of the Republican convention uh, due to a storm in Tampa in 2012. What I did was uh, I talked, and this was such an important lesson to learn in life, I wouldn't want to have to learn it this way and be uh, publicly humiliated, but when you talk crassly about political optics, uh, as you would maybe off the record at a bar, and again, you know, I was on a hot mic. This was not intended 
for air, but I was talking in pure, crass, political optics mm-hmm. terms. And that just got construed when it got uh, out there as um, something other than that, that I was making like a It was a comment that, that essentially the, the Romneys want to go on with their party d- despite the fact that dead black people were floating in, in you know, uh, in, in, in hurricane, uh, I forget which hurricane it right. was in, in Louisiana. Uh, right. I don't, I, I mean, we don't have I, to, you no, no, can, no, no. I was just, I, I, um, because of a whole series of events, I, I was actually referring, I didn't, I didn't believe I said the Romneys by name. I was referring like Republicans want, wouldn't want to hold their party while this is happening, that they, the campaign and what have you. But, um, I it see. got, it got, yeah, I probably, into that I probably it made it worse than it about was. The Romneys, and I, as I said, I, I, Yahoo fired me for this uh, in the moment. I apologize publicly to the Romneys, and and I it w- but it was a real lesson uh, in learning about just how misconstrued dumb words can be. And I I was dumb to just talk so crassly yeah. about a political observation when people's uh, lives were at stake and uh, campaign was in play. So yeah. First of all, let me say I remember it because everybody in politics has such a high regard for you. And I think everyone in politics understood this as a kind of careless, uh, careless uh, episode. But, you know, I think uniformly everyone felt terrible about it, Uh, but no more than you, I'm sure. The reason I ask you is, how do you deal with that? A very public sort of repudiation, as you say, humiliation. After building such a great, having such this meteoric career, as I mentioned, and building such a great reputation in the business. Um, I mean, I how devastating I, was it? It was really devastating. I mean, I, I I described it second only to my father's death as like, uh, uh, as uh as devastating kind of a, an event for me. Thank God I had family and friends who immediately came around. And to your point, I heard, um, I mean, I remember getting a message from you in the hours after that, uh, reaching out. I heard from every corner, Republicans, Democrats that I had covered forever, my fellow journalists, there was a real support in the community um, that I was sort of just excommunicated from. You know, in the immediate aftermath, it was like, how do I get out of the convention center and get to my hotel and get on a plane and yeah. get back? And there was all of that. And you just feel like um, the eyes of the world are on you. I got incredible advice from Sam Donaldson, uh-huh. who was my colleague at ABC. And he said, you know, you think you're going into Starbucks to order your coffee and the barista is only thinking about the fact that you were just fired and they are not. They are thinking about their lives and um, it'll just take a little time to realize that. And I I, I think that was true. I think it cr- created this momentary maelstrom um, and the only way I was able to sort of push through it was a belief that what you said is true, that I had built up enough of a reputation as a solid um well-respected political journalist that 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 reputation would survive this moment. I didn't know that, though. I didn't trust that. But uh, that is indeed what ended up happening, again, with a lot of love and support from family and friends. Yeah. I mean, every single one of us, I mean, can some maybe some of these stories aren't as public, but, um, you know, life is not a straight line. And no. 
but some of these lessons are are really painful. So you went to Politico, and then uh, for a couple of years, and then you uh, wound up here at 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 uh, CNN. Um, and I don't want to go through the whole history of. We can talk about elections. Uh, you and I could burn a lot of time talking about. <laughs> we have of, over the years. Yes, yeah. yes. But I want to talk about 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know. Uh, Lot, there's been a lot of discussion about how CNN covered Donald Trump as a primary uh, candidate, gave him a lot of time because his rallies were shtick. Mm-hmm. They drew eyeballs and so on. And talk to me about that and sort of the decision making that and the discussions that were had back then and what lessons were drawn from that. Yeah, well, I think... Um... Our former colleague and boss here, Jeff Zucker, yes. at the time, uh, has said this uh, many times, and I totally agree with it. One of the big lessons learned, and I, and we learned it pretty quickly, was you were talking about the rallies that um, we, after that first summer, that Trump phenomenon was happening in the summer of 2015, Two, yeah. and we were trying to figure out what it was. And it was this draw and it was almost nothing. We hadn't seen anything sort of in American politics quite like what was happening that we would take his full rallies. And uh, and by September, October of that year, long before the voters in the Republican nomination contest started voting, we stopped doing that. And I think that, uh, as Jeff said at the time, was a, an important lesson to learn to not just take sort of unedited um, the full Trump rally. One of the things that made it, I mean, Jeff was looking at it as a television guy and it was interesting television. One of the things that made it interesting was Trump would say things that no other politician had the temerity to say. And that turned out to be kind of essential to his appeal, that his willingness to basically give the big middle finger to all political conventions to say things that uh, others wouldn't say legitimated him with the people who ultimately supported him. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just think we quickly turned our coverage in addition to just covering the outlandish things he would say, as you said, and have the temerity to say where others wouldn't, which was a story in and of itself. But then that did quickly turn to. So why is this appealing for yeah. a significant swath of the Republican electorate because yeah. he was gaining a ton of traction and yeah. he was clearly on the rise. I mean, by the time we hit December of 2015 and he's doing the Muslim ban proposal already, yes. he's like a front runner in the race. Right. And so we then it was sort of like really trying to report out with voters what about this yeah. was appealing. And I think that became a critical mission in our reporting to sort of um, there was a there was one conversation happening about Donald Trump in the Acela corridor and there was a whole other conversation happening out in the country. And it became our mission to make sure we got that. Yeah, which is a common affliction. You know, Gary Hart back in 1987 told me something that I will never forget. And it was probably the wisest thing anyone's ever told me uh, about sort of politics in our country. He said, just remember, Washington's always the last to get the news. And it was so smart, you know. And uh, yes, something was happening out there. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now, back to the show. You mentioned Jeff Zucker. Mm-hmm. He's a ta- he was a towering presence here. He was the one. He probably brought you over here, mm-hmm. and he brought me here as well. And that's true of many of the people who worked here. He left, as you know, under not the not optimal circumstances suddenly and so on. How uh, how does an organization that was so centered on the personality and leadership of one individual how does it evolve from there? It's a great question, and I think we're watching it before our very eyes. Um, There's no doubt Jeff was so central. I think there was an enormous sense of relief when Chris Licht was named as Jeff's successor from the organization because it was somebody who did what we do. So it was somebody who is a journalist and produced cable news and was of this world who was coming in and somebody with a great reputation as a nice guy and a smart uh, person. But I think just the the fact that um, Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, tapped somebody who did what we do was a really important step. I mean, obviously, if you read the press, so many high-profile people in the organization were expressing publicly concerns about Jeff's departure I think uh, that you must have felt that yourself without a doubt. I I was out on paternity leave when it happened and I was like my mind uh, was blown. I love Jeff dearly, Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think um, tapping Chris um, was something that helped the organization in in that very trying moment realize that it may be a transition, but that there was we were going to be on a similar mission. And to this day, you know, I'm trying to process, David, uh, what's going on right now with these hearings, even as Trump is the Republican frontrunner. And, you know, on the one hand, what we're learning isn't terribly surprising. It's appalling, but it's not surprising because from the beginning, Trump's whole political project and frankly, his whole life was predicated on the notion that he was going to flout rules and laws and norms and institutions. He's made a life's practice of that. So the fact that he would do it on the biggest thing is not that surprising. The thing that I think we've we all missed, and uh, that maybe we're not 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 journalists necessarily, but we have to think more about is how much of the country believes those rules and laws and norms and institutions are conspiring against them. Mm-hmm. And so, by taking them, you know, Trump as rule breaker is actually uh, part of his appeal. Uh, to people who don't think the rules are working for them, uh, and that the and that's not only Trump supporters. I think David that believe yes. that the rules aren't no working doubt. for them. I think it has um, that sentiment has a broader uh, audience than just those that support Listen, Donald Trump. Listen, we did Trump a poll for the Institute of Politics recently, and fifty six percent of the people in that poll said they believed that government was corrupt and rigged against people like them. 56%. That's not all Republicans. They indexed high, but there were plenty of Democrats and 51% of liberal Democrats uh, said that maybe for some different reasons, some may be the same that has to do with economics. And But I mean, this is a, this is a challenge for democracy that transcends Trump. If large numbers of people feel that this project isn't working for them, 
And I think, you know, we'd be wise to take that lesson from all of this and not just focus on what one man did to exploit and, uh, you know, exacerbate. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think um, I don't know where it is right now, but one of our polls earlier this year, a majority of Americans believed that election officials might change the outcome of an election because of their partisan interests. I mean, that's well, they have a pretty good example of that. They but, do. But it, I'm just saying it is widespread. No, in the that, sentiment in that, that this is in, uh, maybe not uh, a totally secure democracy. In that same poll, uh, we asked not about the last election, but we it was an agree disagree statement. And it was, um, uh, you know, I believe our elections are generally, you know, administered fairly and counted accurately. Uh, and uh, a majority agreed, but uh, th only 33% of Republicans agree with that. So that wasn't just about the last election. It was a general statement about elections. Um, and that is a Trump effect. There's no doubt about it. And it may be his greatest negative legacy is to cast doubt on the integrity of the electoral system, which is so fundamental to a democracy. The other thing he cast a doubt on, David, was CNN. Mm. I think he had obvious antipathy to Jeff Zucker, who was at NBC and was the guy who bought and, and helped develop The Apprentice mm -hmm. that made Trump the political force that he uh, became. But um, I think some of it had to do with CNN itself and CNN's positioning in the world, he told Leslie Stahl that he attacked the media because he didn't want people to believe what they were saying. And a lot of people believed, uh, and you know, many still do, but it, CNN had a broad swath. It wasn't just of the left or the, and I think he saw that as a, th as threatening. And he, he made it his project to partisanize. Without a doubt. I mean, he, um, and by the way, I don't think you, you know, I, I assume you'll agree with me on this. This was not new to American politics for presidents to try and uh, utilize uh, the press of course. Uh, as an opportunity. I mean, Richard Nixon uh, is the example that famously, comes to mind. Yeah. Famously uh, did this. So so this there was something tried and true about this. But but you are right. Trump wanted clearly to make CNN an actor in his uh in his presidency and he in the way in which uh, the country perceived him, he wanted us to be an opponent of his. I mean, literally calling us the enemy of the people, uh, which is just, you know, well, so Stalin offensive. To, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it had some success for him politically at times. Uh, I think it did not ultimately uh, succeed for him as like the thing that was going to be able to save him. And um, I've worked in a lot of newsrooms. I think CNN, for the most part, did a pretty good job of not taking his bait. And what we did instead was sort of double down on our journalistic mission. I mean, at the beginning of the Trump presidency, I saw a rededication to purpose, not just at CNN, but across journalism mm -hmm. to um, holding those in power accountable to truth and facts. And it was just, um, it really redoubled the mission, I think, of journalism in many ways that proved 
very successful for CNN. I mean, I think it yeah. it brought in some of the most talented reporters here. There was a sort of weird symbiosis. I mean, it was good for CNN and good for journalism in the sense that people were paying attention. And Trump said, you guys are going to miss me when I'm gone. And we've seen it. We've seen not just at CNN, but across the board, kind of a decline in in interest, which was white hot when he was there. Well, let's talk about where we are now. You just reported out a poll mm-hmm. uh, from CNN. Tell me how you see the, 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 the political climate today. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, President Biden uh, is in a world of hurt at the moment in terms of the polls. He's at 38 percent approval in our brand new poll that came out this week. That's his numeric low point of his presidency in our poll. But he's been hovering in those upper 30s, low 40s, low range for a while. I mean, numerically, it actually puts him at the very bottom of the heap of all his modern day predecessors at this point in their presidency, including Donald Trump, who was a point higher uh, around this time, 39 percent. But I think more important than just Biden's numbers, David, this is an electorate. This is a country that is um, so dissatisfied at the moment. And so I think 21 percent of voters in our poll said things are going well in the country. We haven't seen the number that low since 2009. Yes, at the height of the the, the great exactly. recession. And, and so you're you're just seeing um, a sour, dour, dissatisfied um, electorate out there. And that usually doesn't bode well for the party in power, right? That kind of uh, sentiment. What is interesting, and I think you know, you and I have studied midterm elections and and the correlation between a president's approval and his party's performance in the midterm elections. It's it's like it's not quite one to one, but it's as like closely correlated in American politics as you can get on any score. And yet what we're seeing in this poll is the generic congressional ballot right now is tied 46 percent to 46 percent uh, Republicans to Democrats if the election was held today. So. We we should we should point out that is improvement for Democrats for sure. Uh, And we can talk about why in a second. Democrats, because of the way we sort ourselves geographically, generally need six to eight points uh, of margin to 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 actually gain. To give an example, back in 2014, at around this point, Democrats had a four point advantage on the generic congressional ballot. As I recall, 2014 was not a very good year for Democrats. They lost control of the Senate. They lost House seats. Uh, and yet they had a four point advantage on this. But in 2018, to your point, Democrats had an eight point advantage yeah. on the score at this point. They won 40 seats in the House. Right. So, yes, uh, the fact that it's tied uh, gives Republicans comfort. But it does, as you said, Democrats have improved a bit and it does give Democrats some sense that I'm talking to uh, right now that. Perhaps this may not be as like monstrous of a yes, loss yes. as they initially thought. Yes. Instead of a Category 5 storm, it could be a Category 3. <laughs> there you go. Yes. But that's but that Category 3 has implications. It could mean that Democrats hang on to the U.S. Senate, for example. And Trump is actually – he's actually helping, potentially helping in that project by um, – by enlisting candidates for Senate, for governor, in some cases for the House, who have the wherewithal to win primaries, but may be the less effective general election candidate. Pennsylvania, 
a case in point where he pushed Dr. Oz across the finish line. And doc, but Dr. Oz is deeply unpopular in that in that state. Uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, you know, may still win that race for a variety of reasons, but he is having a really difficult time. And Warnock, the Democratic incumbent there, Reverend Warnock, is running far ahead of Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. uh, who is running for governor uh, against Brian Kemp. So, you know, I keep saying that the 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 uh, antidote for Democrats, or at least the the best thing they have going for, may be him and Republicans who who should by dint of all these indices that you talked about, should have should romp in the fall. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it is as advantageous a overall climate as one could imagine for Republicans. Um, And and again, where people stand on the economy and inflation, it's it's hard to see uh, all these other pieces necessarily totally eradicating that. I mean, that that is still the driving force. You mentioned Trump. I also think the Supreme Court uh, and overturning of Roe versus Wade has uh, no doubt, if you just look at the data. uh, That's where the turn came. Yeah. Has enthused some Democrats to. to I I think this is such an important point because I don't think that the um, I don't think it's just about abortion. I think that's clearly a big animating force. That was such a wrenching turn in social policy in this country back 50 years, and it's enraged not just women but many men. But it also helped support the growing fear among some voters of extremism on the Republican side. So guns, uh, this whole issue of elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, whereas six months ago, I think you heard in, in focus groups, independent voters saying, yeah, the, Repu- the Democrats are just they're too far left, they're too extreme critical race theory and all of that. Now these same voters are saying, you know, these Republicans are starting to scare me. And uh, I think that's what's pulling this vote back a little. The question is, you know, where will we be in November and whether this trend will continue and whether Republicans can control these forces that have been unleashed? Right. And to your point about Trump, how much does he really inject himself? I mean, if he really is going to announce a candidacy, uh, for the 2024 presidential run uh, prior to the midterms, he's going to be such a dominant well, focus. Well, I think it, there are a lot of Democrats who are hoping that that happens. There's and no a doubt. lot of Republicans, Republicans are who are praying it. that it, it, <laughs> exactly. it won't. But he, for his own reasons, some of which have to do with uh, his uh, legal predicament, may decide, I'm going to do that. And he tends to do what he wants to do. The other thing I'll just say about him in these January 6th hearings, there's so much conversation going on right now that he is taking on water, that he there's some damage being done uh, within Republican ranks of Donald Trump. And I think there's some evidence to support that. But I feel like the other piece of that that is missing is that that may actually ultimately help Donald Trump, because what does it mean if he takes on water with Republicans that he can't clear a field? That right, more right. Republicans are jumping exactly. in, and he benefits Larger from a field because they have a winner-take-all primary exactly. system so over the, there. The way that Republicans do the nomination process. So, if there's a crowded field, this is it'll be like 2015 and 16 all over again. He'll only need 25 or 30 percent of the right. vote in a exactly. given primary to win all the delegates. Exactly. 
Exactly. So it's this perverse, like he he might be doing some da- there might be some damage done and he's taken on water with Republicans and that may ultimately help him. Let's talk about Biden for a second. Obviously, I know him well, served with him, he, you know, consider him a friend. Uh, but he obviously, as you say, you know, for the last year has been, you know, on a kind of downward skein. Uh, and some of it has to do with issues that are frankly global in nature, you know, inflation, supply chain issues, energy, energy prices that whoever's in charge is going to get blamed for. That's the job, right? Some of it has to do with age. And uh, that's a harder thing to, I mean, those things may resolve themselves. um, But, and it has to do with how he presents himself. You're, I'm now I'm asking you as the theater guy, um, how much of that, how much of that is holding him down? How much of that is creating doubt? It's a good question, David. I don't know that I've seen a ton of data to support that that is. And, and well, I, 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 I haven't been witnessing to enough focus groups where that's been the Times the poll question. when people were asked whether they want him to run 64 percent said no. And of that group. When they were asked why, thirty-three percent, the top number was eight. Yeah, that's the only sort of piece I've seen that yes. uh, supports the the theory. So I'd want to see more and hear from voters more. Um, you know, it's not like he wasn't old on the campaign trail in twenty twenty, right? And it didn't uh, prevent him, but because of COVID, he wasn't out as much, and so uh, perhaps Americans didn't get to see him as much and, and make this perception. I. I think that, as you know, as you approach fifty, you know, <laughs> the arrow only goes in one direction. <laughs> that is true. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I do think it's something that he and his team are going to have to address more if indeed he does yeah. choose to run. And it's not just about putting out um, a doctor's report, right? right? I think I think he needs to address this issue head on. He's the one that said to the country, "He's here to pass the torch to the right. next generation." We'll see. Presidents can recover. We were at 38 percent with Barack Obama in August of 2000, at least in some polls, August of 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nate Silver wrote a piece on the cover of The New York Times magazine in November of 2011 saying, is Obama toast? And he ended up winning a pretty healthy electoral landslide. So that can change. um, But this factor is one that has that 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 Biden's going to have to. Uh, consider. Um, we could talk about what the what would happen if he didn't run, but I want I want to reserve some time to talk about one other thing. Um, you're you're a gay man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're married. I am. You have two adorable <laughs> thanks children. Um, talk to me about that journey, that part of your life. Um, it was. I, I mean, not I... not not just the kids, but just. As a young man, yeah. Um, how how I came out yeah. very late in life, so it was something that why um, I guess because I was trying desperately not to have to admit to myself that I am not fitting the image that I think I had or my family had or my friends had for me in my life. That's painful. Yeah, no doubt. And must have been lonely. It was, uh, and yet I don't. I didn't I had a fantastic childhood and like very happy and very surrounded by love and support and 
I, it, it was not, I, the pain was lonely. If, but I don't, I, it wasn't something I wallowed in. It wasn't something that um, diminished my ability to love life, which I always have. It, it was diminishing my ability to live my life to the fullest. And when that became untenable for me, um, and when what when when, when was I mean it? this was in my uh, late thirties, mm-hmm. so you know I would just and it's so when I think about it now it's like I I came from the most supportive environment of this nobody in my family or friend circle would have been at all uh, upset or it wouldn't have rocked their world in a way but uh, I couldn't get there I just uh, couldn't get there so um, it was uh, it was a uh, so I do you guess think the, if you if if David Chalian were born today, yeah, do you think you would have less uh, have have had less of a struggle? I was struck by the fact that the House overwhelmingly this week voted uh, to codify uh, gay marriage and to do away with the Defense of Marriage Act, which was passed in the '90s that was really uh, hostile to uh, gay marriage, and there were 47 Republicans who voted for it. Um, are we in a time where young some people, in leadership like uh, yes. Elise Stefanik? Yeah. yeah. Are we at a time where young people uh, will will feel less conflicted? Um, I think so. I mean, I the one thing I, I recall just covering this issue as a journalist, I had never seen public opinion move. I couldn't agree more. as fast yeah. on this issue, and I'll tell you a story. I was at an off the record lunch in two thousand. Nine, I believe you may have been there, but I was sitting seated next to Robert Gibbs, and it was like ABC's political Washington yeah. team and the White House team. And I was sitting next to your friend and colleague Robert Gibbs, and I turned to him and I said, "I'm going to make you a bet right now. I'm going to bet you that Barack Obama runs as a pro-gay marriage presidential candidate for re-election in 2012." And he turned to me in the winter of 2009 and said, "Not a chance." Yeah, it's um, funny. You know, it ju- like I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. In 2011, when we were uh, meeting to discuss the campaign, he said, "Sometime during this campaign, someone's going to ask me a direct question about gay marriage, and I'm telling all you guys how I'm going to answer, and you better figure out how you're going to deal with it." So, you know, this was always a having Joe Biden go and meet the press was not one of the options. No, but he, <laughs> but he was, you know, he was. So that was long before Joe Biden went on Meet the Press. Yeah. But he um, but he struggled with this because I can tell you way back to when he was running for the Senate, he was struggling with this because he had gay friends and gay neighbors. And this was not you know, he was not fearful about uh, about uh, about gay marriage. Um, let me ask you just in closing a, a couple of things about that. You are happily married now, mm-hmm. and as For I mentioned, five years. Did, yeah, which is which is great. Um, what did you think when you read uh, read Clarence Thomas's uh, uh, opinion in that in the in the Dobbs uh, Act uh, Dobbs decision on abortion, in which he said, "Now we ought to take a look at gay marriage. We ought to take a look at contraception, and so on." I mean, is there any? I know this is going to be so hard for people listening to this to believe or they'll think I'm dead inside. I don't know. I I can read, like, I read Clarence Thomas's concurrence, like, 
as part of my job. It doesn't go through some filter of what does that mean for me and my life? And uh, I'm one of those journalists, uh, David, I don't vote. Okay, I um, not uh, because I don't think you can be a journalist and and vote. I think you can do both things for me personally. And this came from people like. Charlie Gibson and others that I worked with um, at ABC, I I got to participate in a different way. I got to poke and prod and be in Iowa and be in New Hampshire and ask questions and test uh, the thesis of politicians and what have you. And it, it felt like I didn't have to go in then and make a choice between these people I cover. Right. So, so I, you have the ability to separate. That. It's this thing. It's like, yeah, I so I see that and I don't go to the place in my mind of like, Oh, wait, I'm a man married to a man. And now a member of the United States Supreme Court is saying that, you know, it does. It didn't filter well, let me through put it to me way. in that way. It's do just, do, you, have any, that do you have any fear or concern that somehow we'll go backwards on this issue? I don't. Maybe I'm naive. I think what we were just talking about, the the speed with which the American people There's moved a huge on majority it, on it. It's so big. It's hard not to, I mean, the vote you cited last night would have been unthinkable. Yeah. And I just think the issue has moved to a place of permanence. I, I am sure people are listening and being like, yeah, I thought that about uh, Roe v. Wade. And and maybe if uh, the Republicans form some 50-year-long quest to overturn gay marriage and organize around it in the way they did on the abortion issue, public opinion can be changed again and things can move again. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah. David Chalian, happy birthday. Thank you for spending part of it with me, and thanks for being such a great colleague. I I always, always enjoy chatting with you and, and listening to you. Right back at you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.